Luke chapter 2, picking it up in verse 21. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phenuel of the tribe of Aser. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about four score and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And thus is the reading of God's word and all his children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray Thee now that You would pour out Your Spirit, that You would be with us here in this church, and You would open up our hearts and our minds to see Thy salvation, even Christ, as it is set before us here in Scripture and indeed in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I wanted to discuss this morning the narrative of the birth of Christ, particularly as it appears in Luke chapter 2. But... There's a little background here that I think we need to appreciate. Um, You know, we have such a blessing having the Bible with us. The Scripture says we have a more sure word of prophecy, for indeed we do have a more sure word of prophecy because we have not only the Scriptures in its entirety, but we also have Christ in our heart, that day star that rises in our heart to help reveal to us the truth and to help us um, rightly divide the word of truth. So we have no trouble um, going from one prophecy in the Bible to another prophecy and seeing Um, how Christ is so clearly set before us. Um, But that's not true of the Israelites. You can imagine yourself now in the history of Israel that they went through a period of about 430 years literally sitting in spiritual darkness. The end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament are separated by about 430 years. There is um, 
They had no revelation during that period of time, and that 430 years ex well exceeds the, the very life of our, the length of our own country's life. So we think we're old to 200 plus years, but they had a period of darkness that well exceeded that. So 430 years they've been sitting in spiritual darkness. And then out of nowhere, um, Zacharias is in the uh, temple serving according to the course of his tribe, and the angel Gabriel comes to him, and uh, Zacharias, as we know, happens to be a descendant of the Aaronic priesthood, as is his wife Elizabeth, and Gabriel tells him that his wife is going to have a child. Now, he kind of struggles with that, and he says, how, am I, how should I know that this is true? And Gabriel says, well, I am Gabriel, an angel of the Lord, and I'm telling you that it's going to happen. And just to affirm that, he strikes him dumb for nine months. So we have an annunciation, annunciation to um, to Zacharias that his wife would bear a child, and yet for nine months he's not able to speak about what occurred in the temple, though people undoubtedly questioned him about it. So then Elizabeth, his wife, who uh, conceives, she's pregnant, and then she hides herself for five months. So this period of spiritual darkness, while it's beginning to um, peak its light, if you will, on um, Zacharias's life, uh, as far as the nation is concerned, they are still in this period of darkness. Now, she doesn't know, Elizabeth doesn't know why she's pregnant. She says in Luke 125, she says, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked upon me to take away my reproach among men. So no word here yet about how her child will minister according to the Aaronic priesthood, because not only is she a descendant uh, um, of the Aaronic priesthood, but her husband is as well. We know that as the narrative uh, respecting the history of the life of Jesus unfolds itself, that John will not only prepare the way for the Lord, but he will also anoint Christ uh, in the River Jordan to be the high priest, which, of course, Christ is. So we do see in the narrative um, that Elizabeth, in her sixth month of pregnancy, that um, the angel Gabriel then visits a virgin named Mary and tells her that she will conceive and give birth uh, to the child that shall be called the Son of God. So now we have something that's very definitive taking place in the life of a particular person. Now, in Luke chapter 2, verse 26, we are told that uh, when Mary, Mary was told that when she would conceive the child, um, she asked the question, um, how shall this be? How shall this be, seeing that I know not a man? So she can appreciate that it requires... Um, what is required to, um, for a woman to conceive. So she wants to know how this is going to be. In verse 35 of Luke chapter 1, the angel says, we read there, and the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So she's told here that Basically, God is going to come upon her, and through the power of the Holy Ghost, she shall conceive, and the child shall be called the Son of God, and it shall be holy. Now, from Mary's perspective, we can appreciate why this announcement might be troubling for her, because she says, I know not a man. She is betrothed to Mary Joseph, and so um, being pregnant without knowing a man, is going to look very poorly on her character. And Joseph's going to struggle with it, too. You might think to yourself, well, how come she didn't remember what God told Isaiah um, 400, excuse me, 734 years earlier? I mean, how could she forget such a thing? Back in Isaiah 4, uh, 714, we read, Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. 
And I want to share something with you of the context of that sign. That sign was given to King Ahaz. King Ahaz was suffering from an invasion from uh, the northern ten tribes, that would be Israel, and also from Syria. They were confederate together, and they were attempting to overthrow Jerusalem and remove him from the throne. Now, they had done that on one occasion, and he had suffered the loss of 120,000 men. So Isaiah came to him to reassure him that um, the assault would not be successful. And uh, they ask uh, Isaiah, or God sets before him, you know, ask of me a sign and I will give it. And Ahab says, well, Ahaz says, well, I will not ask for a sign. Now that's utter hypocrisy because he was wholly steeped in idolatry. So God says, well, I will give him a sign. And here's the sign that I will give him. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Now, I have no idea what Ahaz thought of that sign, but he must have been thinking, okay, I'd like to see that sign in my lifetime. As a matter of fact, I'd like to see it before the Syrians and the Israelites attack because that would give me assurance. Like Gideon said, show me the dew on the fleece and then show me the dew not on the fleece, something tangible, something um, uh, real time that I can hang my hat on. But that's not the sign the Lord gave him. So I think we can appreciate why that sign might have been obscured in history because although the um, attack was not successful, so the Lord did in fact bear him out, um, he never saw that sign. And so this uh, prophecy that we um, that is so very familiar to us was really very obscure to the Israelites. So we can appreciate that that's not what came to Mary's mind when Gabriel told her that she, as a virgin, would in fact conceive. Now in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, there's an addition to that, not to the sign, but the Lord also tells us by prophecy, he says, for unto us a child is born. So we can appreciate that a birth is in view here. Unto us a son is given. And we're seeing that with respect to what's happening with Mary here. It's called the Son of God. And he's telling us here that a son is going to be given. The son that is going to be given is going to be the Son of God. The child that's going to be born is going to be Jesus himself. That's Isaiah 9.6. And it says that the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There's a lot of things that can be learned in that title there, but we're going to. The only reason I'm sharing it is to help us to appreciate why this was such a novel thing for Mary to hear and even for the nation to receive that a virgin is going to conceive and give birth. So she's heard it, she's troubled. Um, she's got to deal with it. Um, Joseph also struggles with the idea that the woman he is betrothed to, whom he does not yet know, is going to be pregnant. Or, and so in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and 20, we read about how he dealt with it. And it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together... She was found with a child of the Holy Ghost. So the Lord is telling us here that Joseph doesn't know how she got pregnant. She's been impregnated by the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Now, I want us to appreciate when the Lord says that he is a just man, that's judicially just um, legally just before the Lord. It's not that he's just or is justified by the way he deals with the situation, but he's simply been justified by uh, the grace of Christ. It says that also about this man Simeon we read about in Luke chapter 2, um, uh, that he also is a just man. Scripture says that of 
the, uh, Lot, and it says that of um, a couple of other Old Testament saints, that they were justified by Christ. Obviously, they had faith in Christ, and they were looking forward to uh, Christ's coming. So I'm sharing with you that the way he chooses to handle it is not associated with any judicial um, uh, standing before the Lord. He has three choices, all of which are consistent with the law. He can invoke the death penalty. He can stone his uh, betrothed wife for, um, uh, as the scripture says, for having wrought folly in Israel to play the whore in her father's house. So if he's suspicious that she's uh, becoming pregnant through infidelity, he can make a public example of her and he can have her stoned to death. That comes from Deuteronomy 22, 21. He can also, according to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, he can give her a writing of divorce for adultery and put her away quietly, and that's what he um, chooses to do. He doesn't want to make a public, public example of her and have her stoned, but rather he was uh, minded to put her away privately. Or the third option is he could simply take her to wife, and that's what the angel Gabriel tells her to do. And it says in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. So God comes to Joseph to reassure him that what has taken place with respect to his betrothed wife Mary is of the Lord, and he can take her um, to wife knowing that she is in fact a virgin and faithful to him and faithful to the Lord. So we can appreciate or we see that Joseph disappears from the historical narrative We know that for Mary, this issue of her pregnancy and lack of fidelity respecting uh, the birth of Christ Jesus never goes away. For Mary, the Jews believed her to be an adulteress and a fornicator. In John chapter 8, verse 19, when Jesus is discussing about where he has come from, he's speaking in a spiritual context that he's come from the Father. And they say unto him in verse 19 of John chapter 8, Where is thy father? Joseph, having disappeared from the scene. Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my Father. He's speaking of his heavenly Father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And then when you get down to verse uh, 41 of John chapter 8, as the conversation continues, Jesus says to them, Ye do the deeds of your Father. And he's um, associating them with their Father, uh, the devil. Then said they unto him, We be not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. In other words, they're throwing the um, issue of his birth uh, back in his face. They're basically saying that he was born out of wedlock. And as such, Scripture says he's not even allowed in the temple. One that is born out of wedlock is not permitted in the temple. So they're throwing it in his face. What I'm sharing with you here is, is if they're throwing it into his face, here he's an adult now, having ministered for a period of time. Obviously, that's been an issue for Mary her entire life. So the issue of her fidelity um, never left her. If it had left her, it would have been manifest that the people indeed believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that the prophecy of Isaiah 7:14 was fulfilled in her and through her by the Holy Ghost, that a virgin did conceive and bring forth a child. But history proves otherwise. History proves that they did not believe that Christ Jesus was from God. So here we are in our narrative surrounding the birth of Jesus in a country, in a people whom God has set apart 
for the express purpose by which and through which he would manifest himself for, to the world. Jesus, or excuse me, God chose a people, chose Abraham, brought him down uh, as an idolater out of Ur of the Chaldees, and brought him down into um, Palestine with the express purpose that in him he would build a mighty nation that would glorify him in the things that he did in them and through them, in the grace and the mercy that he would show um, national Israel. So they have not done that, uh, but God has done that uh, very thing. He has manifested himself to the world in spite of national Israel's utter rejection of him. All the world acknowledges this day as the day Christ Jesus' birth is celebrated. All around the world, everybody knows December 25th is a day that Christians observe and recognize the anniversary of Christ's birth. If you drill down into the Bible and do your homework, you'll find that he was most likely born in October in the year 4 BC. But that's not so important as to believe that he was born indeed, having come into the world as God promised in numerous scriptures um, um, throughout the Bible. So the world does acknowledge the birth of Jesus Christ. But what they will not acknowledge is that he is God manifest in flesh. They will not acknowledge that as God, he is king and Lord over all things. Even a rebellious people will acknowledge the king whom they seek to overthrow. We heard a number of our neighbors after the 2016 election say that Trump was not my president. He was president. They might not have liked that, uh, but they acknowledged that he was president. He's not my president. Well, he's somebody's president. But they would not acknowledge anything about Christ with respect to that, that he was king and Lord over all. They will not acknowledge why he was born and what that means to them. In other words, they will not acknowledge who he is, and they will not acknowledge what Christ did. And that everything that we see play itself out in Scripture here was all by divine appointment. It's not a coincidence that both Zacharias and Elizabeth both happen to be descendants of Aaron. It is not a coincidence that Mary and Joseph are both descendants from King David. When I read the account in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, the scripture even refers to Joseph as the son of David, indicating that his son, his adopted son Jesus, has the legal right and authority to sit on the throne of David. It was not a coincidence that he was born in Bethlehem. God obviously worked in the heart of Caesar to require a taxation or a census for the purpose of taxation, requiring everybody to go back to um, the house, um, the city from which uh, they are descendants of. That Bethlehem means house of bread. The Lord is obviously teaching us that Christ himself will be the one whom we feed from. That he was laid in a manger as the bread of life is indicative that, again, we will feed from him. Um, That the census was taken helps us to appreciate that God was counting the cost of what it would be, what it would cost to redeem all of his people. So just as Caesar is finding out what, uh, how much money he can get from the people, the Lord is using that to illustrate the fact that um, redemption of his people is required and how many people will be um, 
uh, he, how many people he will in fact redeem. Now in Matthew 2, chapter 2, it is said that he is born king of the Jews. He is born king of the Jews. Not that he will be the king of the Jews, that he might ascend to the throne upon the death or of, the, of his father or the abdication of his father from the throne, but that he, in fact, from his birth, is born king of the Jews. In Luke chapter 2, verse 11, it, he is said to be born, quote, the Lord. So he's also identified as the Christ in that verse, the anointed, which is the anointed one of God. It's the Greek form of the word Messiah, which means the anointed one of God. So we have some very clear things here with respect to the enunciation of the birth of Christ as to who he is. And it was prophesied that he would be Lord and King back in Isaiah 9, 6 uh, to verse 7. There we read, for unto us a child is born... Unto us a son is given, and then it says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. He has the rule and authority for all things. If you ever, if you happen to think of those, um, the statue of Atlas holding the globe upon his shoulder, that is true of Christ. He indeed does bear all things up. By him all things consist. All principalities and powers were um, created by him and for him. Um, he rules over all things. In verse 7 of Isaiah 9, it says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. So the Lord is sharing with us the eternality of the Lord's rule, the scope of it and the eternality of his rule. So, they won't acknowledge his lordship and his kingship, nor will they acknowledge why he came into the world. So we ask ourselves now, why was God manifest in flesh? Why was he manifest in flesh? And so that gets to be a real sticking point uh, for people. They will typically say that he was born to teach us something, that he was born, he came into the world, he was manifest in flesh to teach us to love one another, to be kind to one another, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be charitable. They will tell us those types of things. But I would ask you this question, does God really need to step out of glory to deliver a message such that a person, in person, to deliver a message in person so that they will receive it? I mean, he'd been speaking through the prophets for thousands of years. Christ's coming, he is in fact the visible revelation of the living God. He is the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. And we read that in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It says in the scriptures that when he taught, he taught with authority. Not like the scribes, but he taught with authority. But I would share this with you. If his objective was to come to the earth, step out of his glory, manifest himself in flesh to teach us something, then he was a miserable failure at that because they learned nothing of that message from him. As a matter of fact, they killed him, uh, indicative that they heard nothing about the message of love. They certainly learned nothing about that. But if he came for another reason, like, for example, to die for the sins of his people, he was an unqualified success because he, in fact, did end up dying on the cross to save his people from the consequences of their sin. So in that, he was quite successful. And the scripture tells us he came to destroy the works of the devil. That he did. 
He came to uh, be the propitiation for sin, that he did. He came to redeem his people, that he did. So he was successful in all of the reasons uh, that he came to, um, to do. So uh, we ask ourselves, what does the scripture say? Why did he come? Well, the answer is in his name. The word Jesus, the name Jesus, means Savior. In Matthew 1.21, the Lord tells us very, very clearly, speaking about uh, Mary here, it says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So if anybody asks you why Jesus came, you can say, He shall save his people from their sins. His name means Savior. That is why he came. So here we are in our narrative. As a nation, Israel has sat in darkness for 430 years. They have been laboring under the curse of the law. As a matter of fact, the last word in the Old Testament is the word curse, and it describes them as a nation. So then we have the fulfillment of a prophecy spoken in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, which comes to literal fulfillment. In Isaiah 9, 2, it says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. And so our narrative opens here with respect to what our deacon had read earlier regarding the shepherds watching their flock by night in a field. And it says in verse uh, 8 of Luke chapter 2, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. So here they are in darkness, and they have seen a great light, and it's the annunciation of the birth of Christ. It says they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Again, why did he come? A Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. I hope you can appreciate how that might have struck these shepherds and frightened them. You can appreciate why they were sore afraid when they saw this thing. That here they are out in their in the field watching their sheep and then suddenly bursts upon them in glorious light an angel of the Lord and then surrounded by a, a host from heaven uh, praising in, uh, God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. In verse 15 we read that once the angels had departed and left them the shepherds said let us now Go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. So God himself, who we can appreciate, preaches the gospel, pointing to Christ. They are now going to go to um, Bethlehem and see this thing. Now, when they get there, they tell Mary and Joseph what things that the angel had told them. And then they go out and they tell other people what they have seen. So they go out and preach the gospel. Um, as our narrative continues, we see that in um, 
that it's after 40 days after the birth of Jesus that Mary and Joseph go to the temple to offer according to the law of Moses. They have uh, circumcised the Lord on the eighth day and named him Jesus as they were told to by the angel. We should appreciate that as the scripture says that if a person is circumcised, they are uh, um, required to keep the entire law. So right there in verse 8, we can appreciate that Jesus was made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them which are under the law. He was under the law, and he was going to keep the law for the benefit of his people right from his birth onward. So we read here in the narrative that uh, because his parents are poor, they have not yet received the gold, uh, frankincense, or myrrh from the um, wise men. That's not going to come for another 18 months. They have not received that. So they are rather poor. So what do they offer up but two turtle doves or two young, um, two pigeons or two young turtle doves, indicative that they don't have very much money. Those will stand for them in terms of the sin offering and the burnt offering. Now, because Jesus is the firstborn of Mary, also the firstborn of God, he is dedicated in the temple because the Lord says that the firstborn um, is um, holy unto the Lord. So Jesus is going to be set apart um, to the Lord. Now, they go to the temple, and we should appreciate that the temple is the very center of Jewish life. It's the very center of the religion. It's the very center of their um, culture. It is the place where God is believed to dwell, in the holiest of holy, over the mercy seat between the cherubim. That is the place where they believe God dwells. It is the place where the priests were to mediate between man and God. And you can appreciate and be certain that it was always very crowded there. God had ordained the construction of the temple to teach us about himself and to teach us what is required to reconcile God to man. The Jews had been given the law 1,400 years earlier and instructions on how to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, which was the precursor of the temple. Rather than see the temple and the law as that which glorified and taught about God, it had become an object of Jewish nationalistic pride and self-righteousness. So rather than look to God, the people looked to self. 1,400 years teaching about what Christ would accomplish, and they learned nothing from it. So I want us to appreciate in our narrative here that the temple is very uh, crowded. There are people milling about everywhere, but yet we have a divine exception here with respect to what the Lord reveals to this certain person named Simeon. In verse 25 of Luke chapter 2, we read, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. The consolation of Israel, you can put quotes around that, that's a title for Christ. He's waiting for that which will bring comfort and um, reconcile men uh, to God. So he's waiting for that, he's looking for that, and it says the Holy Ghost came upon him. In verse 26 we read, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, as I said, 430 years of darkness. They've had the law for 1,400 years. 4,000 years earlier, back in Genesis 3.15, God had talked about that the Messiah was going to come. 
This guy has been told that he is not going to see death before he sees the Lord's Christ. So for him, he's there in the temple because that would be where you would expect to see the Lord's Christ would be at the temple. And he's there waiting for that very thing. Prior to this point, it's been um, Christ is coming, Christ is coming, Christ is coming. And to the angels, it was Christ is here. And to this man, we'll see in a minute, he's going to say that Christ is here. Um, in verse 27, it says, And he came by the Spirit into the temple, so the Lord is leading him. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, he walks up to him, a stranger to them. The baby is 40 days old, and he takes the baby out of their arms. And that would have had to have been a little bit alarming for the parents, Mary in particular. Then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let us, thy servant, depart in peace according to thy word. He immediately knows that it's the Lord's Christ and that now he can go to the grave in peace, knowing that God has accomplished his promise in him, that he has seen the Lord. He says in verse 30, For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. This is that which they have been looking for. Down in verse 38, this woman um, Anna affirms it, says, and she coming up after he said this, she coming up in that instant gave thanks, like, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So she's affirming that this is the Redeemer. He's saying that this is the Lord's salvation. So thrice we hear that the Lord is here. And verse 30 again, mine eyes have seen thy salvation. So I want us to appreciate Simeon is holding this baby and he is saying to God, Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. So, where was he looking? Where was he not looking? He was not looking to Mary or Joseph. Whereas he was an old man waiting on the Lord, clearly he was not looking to himself or to any of his own works. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. He was waiting in the temple for the consolation or the comfort of Israel. He was not looking for anything associated with it for himself or, or to himself. Everything in the temple was to teach about Christ and was to teach about what God does to redeem his people and what is necessary for us to approach him. He didn't see consolate, the consolation of Israel in any of those things. He did not see the Lord's salvation in any of those things. He did not look to the temple. He did not look to the altar. He did not look to what animal sacrifice might expiate on his behalf. We know in Hebrews 10, 4, it says, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. He was not looking to the laver for cleansing, nor any part of the sacrificial system. He was not looking to the Levitical priesthood or how they might mediate on his behalf. All of those things, as the scripture says, are but shadows of heavenly things or types of of things that Christ would accomplish or types of Christ himself. But what he was looking at, he was looking at the person of Jesus Christ, for in the person of Christ alone is salvation. In Isaiah 45, 22, God says, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved. That's exactly what Simeon was doing. He was looking unto Christ. He was looking unto God. And 
by whom he will be saved. In Acts 4.12, the Lord tells us again in very clear language, neither is there salvation in any other, speaking of Christ, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So to the world we say, if you have not seen Christ, you have not seen God's salvation. If you were looking anywhere, if you're looking to the law, if you're looking into things you do, if you're looking to things other people do, to look to anywhere but Christ, then you have not seen God's salvation. So my prayer is, this Christmas and really very frequently, that people would, by God's grace, see Christ Jesus, God's salvation. As we continue in here in verse 34, um, in Luke chapter 2, verse 34, it says, And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of, again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. This um, child is set. To be set means specifically like a stone set in concrete. In Isaiah 8.14, it's speaking of Christ that he will be a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense. And that, what, and that is what bore itself out for Israel. They stumbled over him and they fell. And uh, as the Lord says, then they were crushed by that rock. So that's a sad thing. In verse 15 um, of Isaiah 8, it says, And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and taken. Um, but it also says it will be the, for the rise of many. And so we can appreciate that those that do look upon Christ and see him as the Lord's salvation, that we shall indeed know the resurrection of the Lord. And we are part of that. We were part of his death, burial, and resurrection. And as he was risen, we were risen with him. And as he ascended, we ascended with him also into glory. And so as I finish up here, we can appreciate that though the world might appreciate that we observe the Lord's birth on December 25th, they do not understand what that means. They do not look upon Jesus as God's salvation. As it says in 1 Timothy 3.16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Amen.